Hello and welcome to Global Council's Geopolitics Podcast. I'm John Garvey, Global Council's Practice Director for International Policy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Paola Subacci. Paola is Professor of International Economics and Chair of the Advisory Board at the Global Policy Institute at Queen Mary University, London. She's also Adjunct Professor at the Department of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Bologna. Previously, she was Director of International Economic Research at Chatham House. Uh, she is the founder and director of Essential Economics, an independent economic research service. She's the author of a number of books, including The Cost of Free Money, and she co-chaired the T7 Think Tank Task Force on Economic Recovery, which fed academic third sector advice into Germany's G7 presidency this year. Today, we're going to be principally looking ahead to the G20 Leaders Summit in Bali, which will happen on the 13th. 14th of November. But we're also going to take a wider look at what this year's overlapping crises mean for the international system and for prospects of its reform. So, Paola, welcome. Thank you. Perhaps to start, could you just explain a little bit more for our listeners about how um, the T7 process works? Because this is a relatively recent innovation uh, whose purpose is to feed more third sector academic policy advice into, into the G7 process? Sure, the, the T7 is actually is um, a novelty that was introduced uh, by Germany this year, although an attempt to run a, a T7 was done in 2017 by Italy. Uh, that was much more focused on specific topics and, uh, and culminated with a very interesting conference uh, in Rome, but the, the this year the, the the German presidency of the of the G seven decided to really do a process, as you call, to organize this uh, T seven. So a number of uh, working groups focusing on uh, uh, topical issues, and so each uh, working group had a, a number of academic think tankers, experts to feed in ideas and uh, and policy oriented research. So it was much more structured and granular than the T7, let's say, attempt done by Italy in 2017. What's the purpose of this exercise? Well, this, the T7 basically is structured on mirror, to some extent, the T20. The T20 has been around for now tw- 10 years, more than 10 years, no, not about 10 years. And, and again, the purpose was to be, bring together academics, experts, people working in think tanks in all the countries that belong to the, the T20. So the T7 is exactly structured the same purpose. Now, the point is to, is to feed in ideas into the G7 process, ideas and policy research, data, um, and support the discussion and the work of the working group around the G7. Uh, There is also another purpose for this, the T7, and I would say even more for the T20, is a sort of capacity building. So bringing together academics and experts from uh, developed and developing countries, in the case of the T20, help creating a good, um, you know, improving standards, create capacity, teaching good lessons also in presentations, research, and and creating a network for people, experts who are maybe not quite central to the action of uh, 
uh, the T20, the, the G20. So it's also capacity building is also mm. an important element of this, uh, of these uh, engagement groups. One of the fascinating elements there for our listeners is that you often get the question, well, how, how are the agendas of the G7, the G20 formed? And what, if anything, is the process for ensuring some kind of continuity across presidencies? And the answer over the past few years, over most of the history of these institutions, such as they are, has been, well, there isn't really one. But it does feel that as this think tank process has emerged, uh, accompanying the B20 and B7 processes, the business-led processes, you are suddenly getting a bit more of kind of ground-up um, capacity building, as you say, sort of knowledge sharing across business and the think tank community into government. And it's it, it's really another sort of vector of influence uh, into these institutions, which isn't quite a secretariat, but it it does seem to me to be a way of trying to deliver a continuity that wasn't there in the past? Well, yes or no, in the sense that, yes, you described correctly and, and, and very well that the work of the disengagement groups as capacity building, knowledge transfer. Um, but it's also true that none of these uh, engagement groups, not the G20 or the G7, have found a way to create continuity. The thing is, there is no secretariat. So you can see it at the G7, G20 level, but you see also at the T7 and the T20 level. So, for example, in on the 31st of October, there will be a handover event organized by the German T7 to help the Japanese colleagues to take over what was done this year in hope to really con to create this continuity. But it's entirely up to them. And so each new presidency tend to have a new agenda with new ideas and try to be more innovative than the previous one. And so it is difficult to create continuity. Sometimes, especially at the T20 levels, you see too many things, uh, too many topics, too many areas of research and discussion. And you really feel like, is that all necessary? But again, this is all work in progress. And maybe some of these things that are discussed today and they seem not particularly relevant, they might be extremely relevant in five years' time. So again, the key issue for these, particularly T7 and T20, is to be forward-looking and try to really think of what will be the, the challenges in uh, in the future. It strikes me that... Um... The meeting that we we actually met at in Berlin, the the T seven conference, which preceded the G seven um, leaders summit at Schloss Elmau, it was really interesting to see there. Uh, you had Germans talking to the Japanese about how they were going to handle their presidency and the input into it from think tank and business, and then you had the same thing with the Indonesians and the Indians talking to each other as well. And it it does strike me that this kind of people to people, business to business contact is both A, positive, and B, a way to build up a sort of head of steam from below, if you like, about what the future agenda should be. Exactly. It's actually, at the end of the day, is the network. is the fact that these people are working together, we're all working together, and there is this, let's call it track to diplomacy, then it goes through these uh, engagement groups. So we, we are We've been talking about the T7 and the T20, but there is also the C20, civil society. There is youth 20, you know, young people, 
20, women 20. So all these groups are, and obviously B20, they are all um, um, provide some kind of continuity through their network as opposed to continuity through the agenda. And the fact that we can meet each other every year and we can continue to work uh, together really is um, a way to stimulate and, and encourage collaboration among the the leaders and and, and the countries that so these these are in summary i think we we agree positive mechanisms for engagement and building up capacity so having started on that quite positive note i want to move on to the prospects for what bali might actually deliver through the leaders summit where it's a little bit harder to be cheery at the moment. This is the tensest build-up to a multilateral summit that I can remember. The expectation just in the past few days preceding this recording is that Biden, Xi and Putin will all attend in person and that Zelensky will be there by video link. The Indonesians have been very vocally defending Putin's right to be there um, and they've explicitly called out US pressure. The US have been saying they've been briefing that they would like some kind of biden g bilateral the chinese are saying we don't want to do it because of the um extra sanctions that have been placed on chips and semiconductors and in, in the last few weeks we've got sort of mini summit between india and saudi arabia just preceding the meeting they're going to be talking about energy they're presumably going to be talking about saudi arabia's refusal to increase oil output as the US wanted. And all of this seems to add up to the most kind of divided international community that I can remember going into a summit. What's your view of how the Indonesians will try to handle this? And what do you think we can expect, if anything, given that context? Well, the Indonesians are facing a huge balancing and difficult and challenging balancing act. To some extent, the G20 came to, to the fore in 2008 as the crisis committee at the time of the global financial crisis. Uh, at the time, after the, the crisis was over, we were discussing whether and how the G20 could become a, a permanent forum for the uh, economic and financial problems of the world. And never moved to that kind of dimension, but he always stays at a crisis committee. So Bali is an opportunity for the G20 to, to stay true to it, to have been this uh, crisis committee. And, and the fact then, again, is an informal forum where leaders can meet in an informal way around the table. And that is very positive. So it would be difficult for in Bali but it might bring some kind of um, opening in a very difficult situation that is the current crisis uh, in Ukraine. It might help uh, coordinating better economic policies at the time where we need to all uh, um, step in, in particularly to control inflation and to obviously, ideally, find a kind of coordination in our monetary policy, and I refer explicitly here to the Fed policy and the spillover effect that this is having on many countries, in particular developing countries. So there are areas where more cooperation is necessary and good cooperation, and the G20 
that can continue to do this and and they've been doing this over the year over this year um because there is a process in place and there is quite a lot of work behind the scene but it will be the focus on how leaders leaders will find a way to engage with each other and the fact that they will be in bali to me is a good news difficult challenging but is a good news i would be much more worried if they decided to stay away and a bit what happened last year in Rome when Xi Jinping decided not to participate to the G7. So in the G20, of course, it was still uh, COVID time and uh, a, a difficult situation. But I think the, the reason, the, the, the unsaid reason was tension with the United mm. States. And so, and, and, and Xi Jinping decided to stay away rather than risk to be pushed in a corner and, and be told what to do. So now, possibly the situation might be a bit more balanced in, in Bali. Certainly, there is a role here to be played by the BRICS country, uh, you know, obviously the BRICS without R, in order to try to push for some kind of resolution and some kind of uh, peace agreement or talks with uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And so, and again, the. the uh, big the, the the bigger developing countries, the emerging market economies, the BRICS, can do quite a lot of here. So you know Bali might be a total disaster. So that means everybody goes home and nothing achieved, and everybody's upset. Or could be actually the beginning of a new process. So yeah. and I think the fact that we leave the door open to me is positive. I mean, as you said, it it certainly feels like a more combustible mix than any summit that we've had for a very long time. Obviously, as you said, one possibility is that the leaders can't agree anything. And we've had several um, several finance ministers meetings, G20 finance ministers meetings this year, where they haven't been able to agree a communique. Um, and that's principally been because of Russia. I think one one thing that seems to me to be going on, be great to hear your take on, is despite the fact that you've got emerging markets, including some of the BRICS countries, um, represented there, despite the fact that they are facing a very high degree of instability, um, or possibly because of that, given that that instability is largely um, being created by the Fed hiking interest rates too quickly for them. There is this sense that the US uh, and Western economies in G20 really aren't able to control the agenda this time around. They're not able to, they haven't been able to put pressure on the Indonesians to exclude Russia. Uh, they haven't been able to put pressure on other BRICS members to construe energy policies in a way that's beneficial to the West. And as you said, um, you might well get a situation where, in fact, it's some of those emerging markets that are pressing for uh, some kind of imposed solution, Russia, Ukraine, that is certainly not something that you can see uh, the US or its allies agreeing to at the moment. So I guess all of that is to say it feels like there is a bit of a shift here, and that will be accentuated just by by the chance of um, the next few presidencies all being in the global south as well. So after this, you've got uh, moves from Indonesia to India, and then to Brazil, and then to South Africa. 
just wonder what your reflections are on on that shift. Does it feel like a substantive movement to you? Well, it's it's a difficult question, and it's a difficult question because because of the I'll say the crisis we are living now, which is uh, a, you know different crises overlapping with each other. So we got an economic crisis, and we got a geopolitical crisis. And and it's really difficult to manage both. Um, um, but there is, if the G, basically this, this is the turning point. If the G20 managed to turn this point, and to some extent, um, the developing countries, emerging market economies can find a voice, which is not, you know, what necessarily the West want to hear is they can find a voice um, to basically try to you know to, to to come up with a with a positive agenda and a positive agenda then recognize the fact that we have a war in Ukraine and a war that is being caused by Russia um, and then we need to find a practical solution uh, for that situation otherwise. The risk is that we'll continue for many years. It will be an ongoing war because obviously there is not, at the moment, we don't see any way to stop it. Um, or at least it can be on a low burning um, uh, uh, for 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 long time. Um, but so there is a, a, a positive action then the, the, the developing countries, emerging market economies of the G20 can do to really link the West with, with Russia and find a way to achieve a compromise, find to find somewhere to, to really stop this war. I don't know how, I don't know what would be the level of the negotiation, I don't know what can be negotiating, I don't know what will be the backstop here, but it's an opportunity for them to be to be hurt and to be to be in the sort of driving seat, as opposed to always being driven by the big developed countries. And at the same time, there is an opportunity here to patch up with China. Of course, China has now, we know there's been this declared authoritarian turn, but basically there isn't anything we didn't know before, which is, in other words, and China is not a market economy is not a liberal democracy, but it's the largest, the second largest economy in the world, and and it trades with mainly with the United States and, and Europe, so the two main big trade partners. So again, could we find a, a, a way to to work together and ensure that China doesn't get off on a different tangent that would create a really fragmented system? And so again, the big developing countries, so the emerging market economies, could find and should be, to some extent, um, instrumental to find a way to bridge this, uh, uh, you know, China and and the West. Well, let, let's let's delve into that a bit more deeply because I know this has been uh, a research focus for you, and uh, you presented a paper, I think, ahead of. Um, the G7 summit earlier this year on how China could be sort of drawn further into reform of the international architecture. What what specific measures do you think 
if you say we had a thought experiment of uh, we get that Biden G bilateral in somewhere in, in, in the margins of this G20 meeting in Bali, if you were, if you were advising uh, President Biden to try and find ways of, I suppose, drawing China back into the multilateral system, into the rules-based system. What are the areas that you would you would um, that you would identify as having potential for progress? Well, this is a very difficult question, and uh, frankly, I don't see the likelihood of uh, uh, of this happen very high. I think it probably, as things stand, the best to do is to leave uh the meeting just to organize the meeting around small talks because that is where <laughs> less damage can be done but at the multilateral level which is where the g20 and the rest of the international community can do something there are areas that are very very important and and key points on the g20 agenda where there is um, there is scope for um, uh, for working together. One is the reform of the uh, the uh, financial architecture. So the G20 has commissioned this uh, report, this independent review of uh, multilateral development banks' capital adequacy framework, and this has informed a whole debate around the World Bank. And so, this is a very critical issue. It really goes straight into the provision of uh, development finance, which is uh, a public good, and a development finance which is provided at the multilateral level by you know, multilateral institutions as opposed being provided by you know, bilaterally. And so this is very important also in view of the fact that China is now the largest bilateral lender and in particular lending, it particularly lends to countries in you know low-income countries developing countries so again this is part of the review and the uh, reform of the international uh, financial architecture and this is an area where china can be drawn in um, and can be engaged and 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 obviously china has an interest in uh, in in being part of this architecture the other area where Again, China can be drawn in in a uh, positive and engaging dialogue is the this common framework for debt treatment, which is again a big uh, uh, key point for the G20. It was introduced in um, uh, 2020, late 2020. It's been a re sort of juggle, but basically is it promotes a multilateral coordination around this uh, uh, all official and privately a private bilateral creditors and to basically to take responsibility around this uh, debt burden. And, and we should just note as well for our listeners that at the moment China is outside the Paris Club G20 system for debt sustainability. Yes, but China has made some for, 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 for in, in the view of uh, some commentators, really too small uh, and too late uh, steps. In my view, actually, it's a good sign and towards a, a more positive engagement of China. But China is now part of the uh, creditor committee for Zambia. Zambia defaulted on its debt uh, this year, and and obviously there is now 
this committee that is part of the common framework for the, that treatment to look into you know, that restructure for, for Zambia. So the fact that China agreed to be part of this committee is a good sign. And so we need to find a way to involve China more. And so this is, to me is an area where more can be done because China has an interest to, um, at the very least, to um, to work towards this that that treatment, which is also it's uh, creates problems for uh, many of the Chinese organizations that are that have been lending to developing countries, and particularly the the uh, poly, the so-called policy bank. The other area that strikes me is what you might call a global public good is climate finance, which I think John Kerry was in, in the papers today again saying that the US should should and needs to find a way of talking to China about climate. At the moment, uh, talks have frozen, but they haven't, they haven't been sort of suspended in a formal way. But do you agree with that, that maybe the, the three areas that one could identify now are Sort of debt sustainability, climate finance, and then something around development finance as well. Though the third one feels a little bit more zero sum in terms of Belt and Road and Western alternatives. Yeah, um, absolutely. Climate finance is very important. Uh, the G20 are very keen on the sustainable finance roadmap. Um, China has obviously an interest to be involved. And also, um, to be fair, China. Um, was at the time of the China's chair of the G20 in 2016, China actually made quite an innovative proposal um, around these, uh, um, you know, climate finance. So it is all green at the time was called green finance. Um, so I think it is an important an important area where um, again China might be uh, interested in collaborating. And when I say China, it sounds like a big big block. In reality, there are many different entities that are willing to collaborate and, and operate. And so, I mean, China is not a monolith, as the, the word suggests, but probably we need to break it down in different uh, um, institutions and, and entities that are part of the Chinese state and that can be engaged in different stream of dialogue. Um, I just wanted I wanted to take you back to the economic backdrop to to the leaders summit. We I think you've just returned from Washington after the IMF and World Bank meetings, and again I think it's probably fair to say that the the statements coming out of them were some of the bleakest since two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, um, and the IMF actually actually said uh, at the end I think that the worst is still to come, given. Given what we've said about the spillover impacts of Fed hiking up rates, uh, debt instability in some of the emerging markets within the G20, what do you think those countries will be hoping for or calling for in terms of more policy coordination? Well, that is, uh, each country has a different set of issues and a different set of uh, demand. Um, I would say there is a problem uh, now in in terms of spillover, and and again, I'm I'm referring to the spillovers because that was some that was an innovative uh, innovative stream of work that was promoted by the G20 
around 2010-2011. So again, the recognition then, what they are called systemically important countries, mm. so large economies, or like the UK, uh, countries with a large financial sector, are uh, they produce spillovers, you know, their policies inevitably spill over positively and negatively on other countries. And so this is an important recognition. And I think um, sometimes the politics uh, here tend to muddle the economics. But again, it would be good for the G20 to go back to that uh, spillover impact work um, to really understand how difficult it is at the moment for many countries to really deal with uh, this um, um, shift in monetary policy in the United States, which has produced not only higher rates, but also a much, much stronger dollar. And every country is developed and developing are really struggling with the exchange rate. And um, in the, the G20 uh, finance ministers and governors in their statement um, uh, in um, uh, uh, these months made it very clear that they support a stable exchange rate. And so they are very concerned about the exchange rate that could become a sort of a beggar your neighbor mm. uh, policy. So these are all things that need to be to be taken into account. It needs to be taken into account that there are, inflation has different components. So we are all suffering from inflation, but there are countries that are much more exposed to energy-driven inflation, and I'm thinking in particular uh, about Europe, and countries that are more exposed to supply-side bottlenecks uh, inflation. And we need to recognize that because obviously the policy um, action is different and, and need to be sort of calibrated accordingly. And the third point is about fiscal policies. And again, there is um, now the view that fiscal policy need to be, to some extent, um, be more restrained um, in order to avoid um, you know, more inflation. But at the same time, there is a recognition that fiscal policy needs to support people uh, who are struggling. So it needs to be targeted to uh, low-income groups and those who are mostly affected by this spike in inflation because obviously most of their spending is on food and energy. So again, an action then ensure then uh, you know inequalities is not uh, doesn't get worse uh, or at least people tend to are supported through this uh, difficult difficult period. And the last point is, you know. The quality of this coordination and the, if you like, multilateral response, policy response, will make what is expected to be a quite difficult period uh, more manageable and probably shorter and less uh, with less impact yeah. than if we actually carry on doing each of us each country a different type of policy or a policy which make, might make sense domestically but can have um, negative spillovers on others. So that means that the recovery will be will take longer and the deep will be much, uh, much, um, much, much uh, deeper. It will be more profound. Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, what what what's very uh, what's frightening to 
hear for many of our listeners and, and clients is that in a way that the point of crisis that we're at now is of a magnitude that feels similar, cumulatively similar, perhaps, to 2008, 2009. It doesn't feel like we're quite on that same cliff edge, but if you add up all, all of the negative factors that we're talking about, we are at a point of clear global crisis. But if you then think back to um, that summit in 2009, there was a very clear set of um, policy measures that were agreed and coordinated essentially to prop up global demand through a massive globally coordinated fiscal stimulus and recapitalization of the banks. I'm not seeing any evidence that the G20 or indeed the G7 are, are getting together with that degree of coordination or even that those sorts of proposals are on the table. Um, do, you, do, you think, do you think that there is, there is some hope that we might we might generate something slightly more concrete out of these meetings or does that feel too far on the horizon? Um, let me step back a, a bit. Um, first of all, the G20 were effective because the level and, 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 and the, the strength of the challenge was such that there was no other way. Yeah. And it was easier to some extent because in 2008, 2009, we were at basically at the peak of globalization. There was no political crisis in sight. So it was very easy to work together. It was an obvious, uh, uh, to some extent, an obvious way to get together. So obviously the G7 at the time was G8, was not enough because it's the big emerging market economies were not included. So the G20, which until 2008 was a just finance ministers meeting uh, created at, on the back of the Asian crisis in 1987. At, at that time, it seemed the, the right thing, to, the, the right you know, forum. So, and, and, and it made sense. But that was a completely different situation. So it was a, a banking crisis, very clear, um, the, uh, the impact of this banking crisis and uh, was dramatic. But to some extent, there was one fight to take up and we had a quite cohesive front. Now, we are in a different situation. First of all, we are not in a crisis yet. So, yeah, we are in the sense that we got inflation, we got, uh, you know, much slower growth, but also we did extremely well in the recovery after the COVID. And, and so, to some extent, we are not, quite there into a dramatic crisis. What we know is that things can get very bad before they get better. So I think there is now a sort of awareness and, and the need to be prepared and to avoid uh, missteps. That is a sort of um, um, message we, we got out of the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. Um, but the situation here is uh, we have a multi potentially multi-crisis. So we got a, a geopolitical crisis in uh, Ukraine. Um, we got a lot of stress in the economy. Uh, we got more fragmented world economy and uh, a more, um, um, less, you know, and a less integrated, uh, if you like, uh, uh, global economy. And we have blocks which are now 
uh, in sort of I wouldn't I wouldn't say conflictual position, but certainly in a so in a, um, challenging and uh, position. So they're not harmonious as they were in two thousand and eight, and so the whole mix is extremely difficult. Mm. So. We are sitting on the edge here, looking at what happened, what could happen, and I think it's right to think we need to do something now, and hopefully something even small could come out of Bali, rather than say, well, let's let's wait and see. Um, I, I think it's probably good to start to try to create, to reinforce what we got in terms of policy cooperation before it's too late. Well, that is an excellent note on which to end. Um, I think all our listeners will be hoping for a, a bit more policy coordination um, to come out of Bali. We will obviously be following developments in the lead up to the summit extremely closely and its aftermath. So if you have any questions on anything that you've heard in this podcast, on the G20, on the B20 or the T20 indeed, and how you can feed into those processes, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Thank you very much, Paola. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you.